Welcome to another episode of A Light On. I'm your friend Patrick, and I'm talking to my buddy John Blade today, um, who is uh, one of the most knowledgeable guys I know uh, as far as uh, the whole virology thing and um, and related subjects. So I guess I first wanted to ask you, where did this all start for you? When did you start? um studying this and researching this because you were you were not in this this field right that's right uh yeah so uh <clears throat> we need to get, go back a few years um because um my journey is is really uh going back eight years or so uh when i had a, a crisis in my own life I, I had a choice. Either I, I take my own life or I choose another path. So I chose another path. And, and during that pro, uh, process, I started to, to research health because I knew that I needed more knowledge in order to, to fix my own health. And that started eight years ago. So I started with that and I started to research nutrition. And 2016, during my research, I came across uh, Dr. Stefan Anka, a German uh, microbiologist. So uh, when he won his court case regarding the measles virus, uh, it piqued my interest. I was like, oh, that's really interesting. So I, I started to research at that time a little bit, and I found out that, oh, polio was not caused by a virus either. It was caused by DDT and similar toxins. Mm -hmm. But at that time, I didn't, I didn't go deeper into it. It was like, okay, that's interesting. But then when all this with uh, COVID-19 started, <laughs> then I, it kind of forced me into to diving deeper and look at the foundation of things. So, so, you, that's, so you discovered Dr. Lenka and then just kind of researched polio and that was it for, for that time? Yeah. Okay. Interesting. So it took me another four years bef be before I started to, to dive into the depth of virology and, and the different uh, foundational claims of <clears throat> viruses and how that process is, is done and so forth. So, so did when you research polio did you still believe in in germ theory and and viruses um and you just thought that was maybe like an isolated thing you know oh i guess this was a misconception type of thing yeah i i thought yeah exactly um i was still stuck in in the germ theory but i i was leaving it slowly because when i started to research nutrition i started to realize that uh, hold on for a second. Nutrition is really important. It's really important what you put in in your mouth every day. So I began to 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 shift my perspective on health a bit 
towards the terrain theory without me actually knowing about the terrain theory at all. But, but I started to move in that direction. So it, it wasn't that hard for me uh, in the early 2020 to, to like go all in, in into the terrain and, and see what kind of claims that theory has. So, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. So, so then the scam, the scam hit, and that was really when, uh, when things got more solidified for you. Yeah, um, I mean, early on, I, 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 I wrote an article, a living article, where where I just pointed out the inconvenient facts uh, about things, like the contradictions all over the place. Uh, and during that process, I, I started to come across people like David Crow, um, Andrew yeah. Kaufman. Uh, I came across James uh, McComsky, um, a guy that um, did a early viral change to the Ireland Virology Lab there to find out if they had an isolated SARS-CoV-2, but they didn't have that. So that piqued my interest because I had in, in the back of my mind, I, I had um, Stefalanka in 2016 and the polio. So, so I knew that it wasn't that far-fetched if the virus didn't exist. So that just spurred spur me to research deeper. So, so for people who are brand new to this, what, what do they mean when they say um, the virus isn't isolated? What is the misconception there? And, you know, why is there such a you know, contention behind all of this, this isolation thing. Yeah, it, it really boils down to the definition of the word isolation, I think. Because when the virologists speak of isolation, what they really mean is an experiment with a cell culture where, where they take a sample, uh, which they assume has a virus in it. They just assume, but they, they never confirm it. And then they use that in their experiment in, in the cell culture. And, and uh, they put different agents like antibiotics, antimycotics, uh, feed the bovine serum and so forth. And they wait a few days and wait for an effect to happen, like when the cells start dying and they call that isolation. But if we go back to the original meaning of the word isolation, it means the separation of something from everything else. And that's where the confusion comes in. Because lay people like you and I, we have the original definition in, in our minds, but the virologists, yeah. they speak a totally different language. So, so that's, that's the confusion. So they basically redefined isolation to fit their science, right? Yeah, yeah. Because, because yeah, any, any, I mean, anybody who's ever, <laughs> I mean, I guess who's living on this planet, I don't know, knows that isolation means to put something all by itself. Like I always say, like, if you're, you know, if you're working in a prison and your boss tells you like, hey, put this prisoner in isolation, it doesn't mean put him in a jail cell with like three other prisoners. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean? That's what isolation is, like singling something out. Yeah. And if you really think about it, for, for two years now, almost two years, they, they have spoken about isolation, like people's, people should be isolated. So what are they talking about? Yeah, separating people from each other. Right. Oh, I guess that means we can go out and hang out with our friends, you know? Yeah, exactly. Because that, they redefined isolation, right? Yeah. 
<laughs> that's pretty funny. So it just mean you know, it basically means whatever they want it to mean when they want it to mean that thing, whatever. Um, yeah. So is it true though um, that this that the definition changed after 1952? Is it? Uh, I'm not entirely sure when the definition really changed what they call isolation but if we look at the, the method they use for proving the existence of a virus that changed 1954 with with John Franklin Manders and his first experiment okay 54 right so I but I guess I'm just wondering like was there ever a time when they were I truly isolating germs and um, you know, putting them into a, a host to, to see if it caused disease, and when, like you know, like when did that shift happen? I, I know Ender's or was Ender's the first one to to really just figure out that it was all being done wrong, totally. Okay, so then we need to go back to to history of virology of it, uh, yeah. and the idea and I the idea of a virus because that idea have changed over time. So if we go back to like Louis Pasteur and Antoine Bechamp, a virus back then was thought to be a poisonous substance. Right. Uh, hence the word uh, virus comes from the Latin word virus, which means poison. So that's the original idea, like, like some, some form of poison. But that changed during the 1930s with the invention of the electron microscope because then they could view things that were a lot smaller than regular bacteria. Hmm. So they, then they changed the idea from, from a, like a poisonous substance to a toxic protein that, that uh, was uh, self-replicating. And that idea uh, were around for like 22 years, 20 years or so, uh, from the 1930s to 1952. Okay. But they had they had to give up that idea because they they were never able to prove the idea of a self-replicating protein. So that should be that should had uh, that should be the end of virology, really, because they didn't prove anything. But then two years later, with Ender's experiment, then they started a, a new theory about the virus. So that's the his history of virology, really. So a poisonous substance to a toxic self-replicating protein to a genetic fragment inside a, a protein coating. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and nowhere have they really isolated a virus because the, the, the whole idea of a virus ha has been false all along. So they can't isolate something that doesn't exist. Right, and in this whole time, they they had never never done um, control experiments, right? And Ender's was Ender's is kind of famous because he stumbled upon the fact that he was getting the same effect in the viral culture, right? Without uh, without a quote unquote disease sample. Yeah, and and that uh, just to be to clarify that it was a limited control experiment. It was not properly done. Uh, but even during the limited control experiment he did, he, he saw the same effect that when he didn't have any virus or alleged infected material, he got the same effect. So it, it couldn't be the virus that, that, that caused the so-called cytopathic effect because he saw, saw the effect in both experiments. Right. 
So when did when did uh, Coke's postulates come into into play? Because that is that's kind of like the the rule book of proving a disease, right? Yeah, um, that came along um, from from the famous Robert Koch, a bacteriologist. Mm -hmm. uh, so so the, the the rules are are based on bacteria, not viruses. But but the principle behind the rules. Uh, can be applied to viruses because they're just logical rules, like how you <laughs> how you prove any contagion. First, you have to find it. That principle can apply to all all claims of contagion. You have to find you have to find the alleged contagion. Then you have to isolate it, like separate it from everything else. That principle can be applied to all alleged pathogens. And right. then you have to introduce it to a healthy host and see if it causes an illness and that apply to all as well. So uh, the argument that uh, these uh, postulates doesn't, uh, that they're not required uh, is just nonsense because that's like saying that, no, we don't need to follow logic <laughs> in order to prove an illness. Right. That does uh, seem very logical and intuitive that you would, if you want to prove something is the cause, you would separate it from everything else, right? Like if I want to prove that, my, you know, I'm allergic to the M&Ms in my trail mix, I wouldn't eat all the trail mix and then just say it's the M&Ms. I would, I would just eat the M&Ms, right? <laughs> so yeah. that makes sense. But yeah, I, I received so many, you know, comments about that when I mentioned uh, Koch's postulates. You know, people telling me it's obsolete or, you know, that was like, uh, I don't know, it was debunked in the in the 1800s or something is a co one comment that I heard. Um, but they even changed it to, to suit viruses, didn't they? They changed it to rivers postulates. Yeah. So what's the difference between rivers postulates and Koch's postulates? Well, there's a few extra rules. I think hills, uh, uh, hills and rivers criteria, because there's another guy like hills. Uh, he 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 postulated uh, some some other rules for for viruses, but but in the end it boils down to the same thing. You need mm -hmm. to to find the thing. You need to isolate it, and then you need to expose expose it to a healthy host. Right. Uh, it's just, um, I mean. Um, I, I, even these I, I just want to say this I find that these principles are irrelevant at this point because they haven't been able to isolate it, a virus I mean first you have to find it and then you have to isolate it if you can't find it I mean the principles are irrelevant you first have to find it right, <laughs> right. And, and, and they can't even do that so I mean we, we can argue about the principles as much as we want, but they are irrelevant at this point because they can't even find it. So they haven't even found the M&Ms in the trail mix is what you're saying. Right. <laughs> right. So it's like I'm, uh, you know, telling people that I'm allergic to this, to these M&Ms in my trail mix, but nobody can find the M&Ms in the trail mix. Right. Right. Would you say that's accurate? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so that's pretty, that's pretty stupid. Yeah, that's pretty stupid. <laughs> so, so I guess so. What they're doing right is they're taking like, like for example, with the with the current scam going on, they took one sick patient. Right, he was just 
had symptoms, I guess, right? And they took like a a, a sample of his um, what was it from his lungs? Yeah, lung fluid. Yeah. Right, lung fluid, and then so then from there on they put it in a in a culture. Yeah. Okay, so what what's going on in that culture? That uh, th- you know, what are they seeing, and what are they you know how how do they get to this point where they believe there to be a virus? Okay, so um, I mean, Anders was the one that that introduced the method in in 1954. Uh, and the method is like you take a sample, an un- unpurified sample, which you assume has a virus because they have never confirmed it. So they assume it contain a virus. Then they put it in a cell culture with viral cells, that's monkey kidney cells. And in that, in that cell culture, they put fetal bovine serum and they've put other foreign genetic material as well. Uh, while they put antibiotics and antimycotics. And the reason for, for antibiotics and antimycotics is because they want to, to, to keep the cell culture sterile from bacteria and fung- fungi. So that's why they use it. Uh, and then they store the, the cells of nutrients. So they poison the cells, they starve the cells, and they wait for five days. And then when they see the cells start dying, they call that isolation and proof of a virus. But, but I find that these experiments are irrelevant too, because first you have, to, you have to find the virus, you have to isolate it. And if you haven't done that, then all experiments that comes, that comes after, like cell culture experiments are irrelevant because right. they don't know what they have in the sample. So that sample that they got from the, the, the lung fluid sample, they never take anything they never find anything in it isolate it and put it in the code they just take this like glob of whatever and assume right yeah they assume that yes and so they're putting it in this culture with like starved monkey kidney cells and they also put nephrotoxic antibiotics in it right what is it um Uh, or ampotherosin sorry yeah yeah I think that's that's the one. It's a, it's nephrotoxic, right? Which means it da- damages kidney cells. Yes, yeah, specifically kidney cells in <laughs> a kidney cell culture. <laughs> so speci- they're putting you know specifically toxic antibiotics in these cultures, and so then I, I guess like what um, par- particles are being released in the in the culture after this? Yeah, yeah, okay. Be- because. Because you can imagine if you, if you poison and starve cells, what's going to happen to the cells? Well, obviously, they're going to start dying. And a part of the process when they start to die is that it, it um, creates, not creates, but, but the, cell, the cell walls uh, are being destroyed. So it releases a lot of, of fragments, cell fragments. And those cell fragments are then or then falsely blamed as viruses like oh that's a virus but that's Mm -hmm. a cell fragment from from a dead and dying cell that's all but these these particles which which they look at in in the electron microscope can also be like soap bubbles like pure artifacts uh, created uh, from the procedure of taking a photograph with the electron microscope 
because that procedure it itself is destructive too because they mm. use different uh, stains and dyes they 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 um, shoot an electron beam at it and, and they freeze all kinds of stuff and heating and I, I don't know many different things that are really destructive so so when yeah. they look at an, a picture in an electron microscope that picture has no relevance to reality really <laughs> it's, it, it seems like you know almost as if they're kind of walking into a crime scene and just like throwing shit everywhere right i mean it, it would be the same the same thing right if you're yeah. you know you try to keep a crime scene you know as as it is and and perfect and as it uh as it happened and if you think of the culture that way and you're just like you know introducing all this crap then you can't really you can't really find out what is happening or you know what happened yeah exactly um it's just assumptions and misinterpretations so they work on the assumption that the virus is in the sample they use and 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 then they misinterpret the the effect they see the cytopathic effect the death of the cells they misinterpret that as oh it's caused by a virus well hold on a second you you cannot you cannot blame a virus if you haven't found it before the experiment took place. That's just common sense. You, you need to isolate a variable in the experiment. So let's say X, we call it X, the variable called X. Okay, so you need, you need to have X before the experiment takes place. Otherwise you don't know what you experiment with. Right. Right? Yeah. It's, just common, it's just common sense. Right, right, right. So, so these particles they're they're seeing are basically genetic garbage like uh, a byproduct of the the cell death correct right so what what's this sometimes we hear about exosomes what's your uh, opinion on exosomes or how are they relevant if at all uh yeah so uh, okay uh, to be frank i haven't researched exosomes that much uh, because i just focus on virality but from my understanding uh, when when cells are being poisoned, they can uh, release different kind of cell fragments, and I think that those cell fragments get called different names based on the perspective that the scientists hold. So if you okay. look at a kidney kidney researcher, he said, "Oh, th that's a cell fragment." Okay. If you call an exosome researcher, he say, "Oh, that's an exosome." If you call a virologist, then he says that's a virus. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. So th that's what I gather from from my research that th they pretty much look at the same particles, but they call it different names based on their own perspective and research. Gotcha. So, but but in the end, uh, I I tend to to hold the perspective of Dr. Lanka that it's either cell fragments from dead and dying tissue or its artifacts created by the electron microscope. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So that's so that's all people who are who are denying the virology really want, right? Is that just to have something isolated so you can so you can actually show the real science behind it and you know perform control experiments. Uh, but the funny thing is that Dr. Dr. Lanka has done uh, uh, 
number of control experiments, right, at this point? And what, what did he uh, find? Uh, okay, so uh, the first control experiments he instituted was during the measles trials between uh, 2011 and 2017. Uh, and that he contacted two independent laboratories um, that um, that completed this, and one of one of uh, the heads of uh, these uh, two laboratories uh, stated that the effect, the cytopathic effect, uh, when the cells start dying, is caused by the combination of antibiotics and the starvation of cells. So, and that's not hard to, to like, oh, wow, what a thing. Like <laughs> antibiotics can kill cells and the starvation, like, oh, amazing. I mean, if you, if you consider for a moment here, if you would do the same thing to a human, like if you, if you poison a human and you starve the human, what would happen to the human? Yeah. He, would, he would die. So it stands to reason that, that when he did, when these two laboratories did the experiment and they found out the same thing that like the antibiotics and in combination with the uh, starvation of cells kills the cells is it's not really shocking it shouldn't it, be shocking it's even in the name right anti against bio life antibiotics yeah, yeah exactly I mean, it's telling you right there yeah and uh so okay so that so that's what, that was the, the first time he instituted control experiments. And uh, he had published that, and I have uh, translated that, and it's available. Um, um, I used to share it uh, for people that are interested. Anyway, so um, now during this so-called corona uh, pandemic, which isn't a pandemic, um, he instituted control experiment again. Uh, and he did the same same one as he did during the Mises trials that shows that the, the antibiotics in combination with the starvation of cells is killing the cells, not any alleged virus. And he used uh, in this control experiment, which, which was finished this year, um, he used uh, yeast RNA as the control, as the negative control. And I think that was a really brilliant move because if he would have used a sample from a healthy person, in, in, in the climate we live in today, a healthy person is a sick person because every healthy person is called an asymptomatic carrier, right? right. Yeah. Right. So if he would have used that a sample from a healthy person, then, a, then, then a, uh, anyone could have claimed that, oh, no, but he had the virus because he was an asymptomatic carrier. Okay, but now he used yeast RNA. So try and claim that yeast RNA contained the SARS-CoV-2 virus. That's like impossible. <laughs> so so when he used the yeast RNA in, in this control experiment, um, he got the same result as, as back in, in uh, 2011 to 2017 during the Mises trials that the antibiotics and, and uh, the starvation of cells is killing the cells, so. So even if you wanted to believe, right, that there's the sample that they're taking and putting into the culture contains a virus, right? Even if you wanted to believe that, they're finding the 
cytopathic effect, which is the marker for proving a virus, they're finding it there without that sample even involved. Right. So, I mean, that's pretty that's pretty clear to me. <laughs> but but still virologists and and you know the people who are giving us instructions on our health uh are denying that this is even relevant. Yeah. Um yeah, I I know, I know. And then I, I have been debating a virologist lately. And yes. I mean and I mean what what can I say? They 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 are so blind in their own research that they don't see the assumptions they make. So, yeah. It really is they they're really under like some kind of spell. It's very strange. And you had a very long conversation with one that that you shared. And do do you have any of that available to uh yeah, so uh, yeah, well uh this was this was a Swedish virologist. So so everything was written in Swedish. Uh-huh. But but I mean I I I can I can take the the arguments I can explain the arguments he had. Like Yeah, just to give people kind of a like an idea of of their, you know, their their process or where their mind is at with this whole thing. I think it would be great. Yeah, so okay, so so one of the arguments he made was that extracellular virus can be detected by PCR and specific antibody tests. That was one of the arguments he made that viruses exist. But I answer back that no, this the this is like based on an assumption that the virus has already been proven to exist. I mean, you cannot use a test first before you approve that it exists. You you cannot use a test for a unicorn, for example. You need to prove that the unicorn exists before you can even attempt to build a test to to find unicorns, right? <laughs> right. You, you cannot like use a test and, and use the test like, oh, you see the unicorn e- exists. No, you need to find the unicorn first, then you can build the test. So so that was a, a clearly flawed argument uh, from him. And and then then he started to argue about, oh, but your definition of isolation is wrong because according, with your with your definition of isolation, we cannot find any viruses. And then I told him, but that's not my definition. If you open a lexicon <laughs> and, and look at the word isolation, it means the separation of something from everything else. It's not my definition. It's it's everyone's definition. <laughs> so he doesn't agree that that isolation is anything except putting it in a culture with toxic antibiotics right okay and 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 i i already knew that because uh, when um i think it was christine messe from canada when she did a freedom of information request to cdc uh in march uh this year uh they replied <clears throat> that the defini- the definition of isolation according to the book of microbiology is is the use of a cell culture <laughs> so that so there you go that there's no debate about this there's nothing there's nothing to debate about this their definition of isolation 
is the user for cell culture. Right. And that's that's like done. <laughs> it that's yeah, that's some seriously flawed uh reasoning there. Um so did you try to explain this to him further the diff- the difference between his isolation and and real isolation? Uh yeah, yeah, I tried that, but it was like talking to a wall where he just ignored my my arguments altogether and and he he used other arguments like uh like viruses exist because I I, I told him that but you see, they, they make two arguments when, when, uh, when they admit that they can't find any virus because there are intracellular parasites. Mm-hmm. Okay, so they, they reside inside the cell. Okay, so then I point out just like Kaufman and, and Cowan and, and other people that, okay, but this introduces two problems. If they are intracellular parasites, so can they exist outside outside the cell? If they if they can't, then the whole infection theory is false, because they have to exit the cell in order to infect someone else. So they have to exit the cell at some point. If they can't, the infection theory is wrong. And right. if they can if they can exit the cell, why can't they be isolated then? It's, right. So, but wait a minute. They're telling us, you know, the, everybody's wearing a mask right now and all, all this crazy stuff. They're telling us that these things are floating around in the air, right? Yeah. A- outside of a cell. Yeah. And the theory is that they are fly into our respiratory uh, passages and infect us. Yeah. Yeah. So, so they claim that. And at the same time, they say, when when the argument comes against them, when they can't explain it, then they just claim, oh, it's intracellular parasite. The virus is an intracellular parasite. That's a convenient argument, but it's a hollow argument because the virus would have to exit the cell at some point. So then you could have isolated it, right? right. But they can't because it doesn't exist. And that's an inconvenient fact for them. So they, they try to like argue that, oh no, it's an intercellular parasite. It requires cells for replication and, and all kinds of arguments. And, and, and when I told him that claiming that a virus requires a cell in order to replicate, it's not a good argument because first you would have to prove that the virus exists. Then you can find out what it requires in order to survive and in order to reproduce. Like if I haven't found a unicorn, I can't say that the unicorn requires rainbows, for example, in order to survive. <laughs> I, I, I can't claim that it need a male friend in order to reproduce. I need to, fi- <laughs> I, I need to find a unicorn, then I can observe it, what it requires in, in order to survive and in order to reproduce, what kind of properties it has only when I have found it, I, I, I cannot just in, invent something out of thin air and say, oh, no, a virus requires cells and it requires this and that. <laughs> I need to have it in my hand. Then I can start to find out what it requires, right? Makes sense to you? Absolutely. Yeah, 100%. And the, but the funny thing is that, and these virologists even admit 
that they can't find any of this supposed virus in any fluids, right? Yeah, and th that was the thing he, he confirmed to me. He, he said, no, we can't find it. It's too few of them. But, but then I told him, like, telling me that there's too few viruses to find directly from the fluids is like telling me that there are too few unicorns in nature in order for me to find them. If you can't find, if you can't find something, then you can't claim that you have direct evidence for them either, right? And it can't be all that dangerous. No. If it's not because, everywhere, like they say. No, because you would have to find the virus before you can attempt to do experiments with it. Right. That that might prove that it's causing harm, but they haven't even found it. So I mean, that right. that's like saying, "Oh, Ferris is is causing damage to to children." Ferris, have you found a fairy? No, I haven't found any fairy. So how can you then claim that fairies causes harm to children? The same thing is with a the virus. They would have to find it first. Then, then we can see if it causes any harm or not. It really is this crazy like double speak, you, you know, like, oh, well, there's this thing everywhere, but it, there's just not enough of it. But it's everywhere. <laughs> you know? But they can't find it in, in, in blood, saliva, which negates masks completely, right? Um, semen, I don't think they've ever found it. No, no fluid of the body. They can't, they can't seem to find it. Yeah, right. And, and at the same time, they, they write like articles, like in Nature, they wrote an article <clears throat> about the number of viruses, where, where they called viruses the most diverse biological entities in the world. Okay, so, so just, let's just repeat that. Viruses are the most biological diverse entities in the world. Okay, then we take the second part. Then they say that viruses, they calculate, I don't know, don't ask me how they calculate this, but according to them, the number of viruses are 10 to the power of, of 31. So that's like a one with 31 zeros behind. Okay, that's how many viruses apparently exist in nature, but they can't even find one <laughs> of those directly from any fluids. So how does that make sense? Because they argue there are too few of them. So on, on, on one side, they say, oh, it's the most biological diverse entities in the world. And on the other side, they say, no, there, there's too few of them to find. I mean, that's a direct contradiction right there. Yeah, it I've doesn't always, make any sense. I've always heard them say, you know, you have trillions of viruses in your body. All these things, but where, where? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I can't find them. Yeah, so it, it doesn't make any sense. Wow. And Just, whenever and whenever you have contradictions, then you know there's a problem in the science. Right. And how convenient, you know, that they have all that they have this uh, virology continuing on and on because they've built such an industry on it. You know, you have all, all these like antiviral medications. You have, uh, you know, wipes that kill 99.9% of viruses. Uh, Somehow, all I don't even know how they measure that. All the vaccines. Right. right. I mean, yeah, it would, it would negate 
vaccines completely if you if you have no viruses to find and you're trying to um yeah kill kill or or nullify a virus in your body then yeah 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 so so the ramifications are huge if, if you if you start to understand that there are no viruses because then pretty much the whole whole of big pharma goes away yeah and that's a huge industry that's a huge industry yeah and so a lot of times people will give me these papers you know they'll send me papers where it says oh uh we see we've isolated the virus right here um have you found any papers that that use real isolation outside of a culture no so none of those papers that they used to prove all these viruses, including the current one, they don't, they've never isolated one thing and then proven that it caused the disease. Yeah, that's right. And not one paper. And, and, and as the virologist, as I was debating him, he acknowledged that. He acknowledged that they always use cell cultures. So, I mean, th that's why I, I told everyone that was part of the debate. We were like 30 people. Oh, wow. Me and the virologist and uh, 30 other people. So I just told them that, okay, so that's his statement that you require a cell culture. No, no, no virus has been truly isolated. That's his own admission right there. So that, that's the end of the debate. What, what else is there to debate? Yeah, I mean, that's the very foundation of this whole thing. You know, so it's very easy to debate a virologist because... Um, yeah, they, they won't agree on that point of, of finding the actual thing, finding X, right? So it's very silly. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's something I have started to realize um, the, these few weeks that the debate isn't really about isolation. The, the debate is really about the consequence, like the fact, like virologists refuse to accept reality. They, they refuse to accept the fact that they can't find a virus directly from any fluid. They refuse to accept that. So they make up some elaborate experiment in order to justify the existence of the virus. They refuse to acknowledge reality. Yeah. <laughs> Very much so. And why do you think they're, do you think that they're really truly just that ignorant or they're trying to salvage their, their careers? Um, I, I don't think that these people are, are people with evil intentions or bad intentions. I think like most people that go, go to school and try to learn something, whatever subject it is, they, they learn, they, they are taught a, a specific method and they aren't allowed to question that method because if they do, they fail the class, right? So they, they, need, they, they need to like take in the method and repeat it over and over and over again. And over time, it just becomes like, like when you breathe, you don't yeah. think about it, you just do it. It's like if you uh, teach teach a little kid that that you know two plus two is five, and you just yeah. keep on repeating that two plus two is five, they'll 
live their whole life believing that that's real math. Yeah. So so these the, these virologists are 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 deceiving themselves because they they they've been taught a method and they've been taught that this method is scientific. And then they have been taught how to interpret their results. Like when the cells start dying, they, they've been taught that, oh, but that's a proof of a virus. But they never once question if the methodology is correct or not, if it's scientific, if right. the control experiment, is that properly done? Uh, and they work under the assumption that, of course, viruses exist. I mean, it's, it's so natural for them to believe it. It's like air, oxygen. Of mm. course, there's oxygen in there. Of course, there's a virus. I mean, you can't claim that that's not a virus there. It's of course, but have you isolated it? No, but it's there. I know it's there. And there's nothing more unscientific than than not doing a control. I mean, that's not science. Yeah. No, that's anti-science. Right. Yeah. But it conveniently works out for their little virus theory. Yeah. Yeah, and and it plays right into the to the model of big pharma and and health, um, yeah. their their health model. So yeah, yeah, it's so. I mean, it's just absurd that people refuse to to believe that big pharma is this, you know, really just ginormous mafia. You know, they run very a, a large part of the world. They're so big. You know, they absolutely have this this stranglehold on on humanity. And I, th I mean, I think a lot of people know that but for some reason they've just chosen to forget it, you know. And uh, speaking of uh, Dr. Lenka in the the uh, German uh, a German court found that measles didn't exist. Correct. And what's really hilarious is that if you go on Google and you search this case, they'll say that he lost the case. Right. But he, yeah. but he, he actually brought it to a Supreme Court and appealed, and then won yeah. the case. Yeah. And uh, and when when you go when you go on the internet or Google, and you search for Dr. Lanka, they only show the first trial. Uh, you you cannot find the the result of the second trial, even if you try. You, you cannot find it. You cannot find that he won in the appeal. <laughs> so, so I mean, that goes to show that that um, they really try the best to 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 hide the truth from from people. And, and what's more more stunning about uh, these trials, uh, I gave you the 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 article which uh, I have translated into English, yes. which goes through the first and second trial. And in that in that article, he highlights the fact that this uh, Dr. Barden, the Swedish Swedish guy, um, he didn't even read the six studies. He didn't even read them uh, when he when he used it against Lanka in the first trial. I mean, this this was one of the things that that uh, was highlighted in the second trial that he, he didn't even prepare himself. So he took just took six studies, which he thought was evidence for a virus, for the measles virus, but he didn't read them. And he didn't present them to the court in the first trial. 
So the court didn't have anything to rule on. They just ruled on um, the idea that, of course, the Mises virus exists. But it, hmm. So they, they ruled against Dr. Lanka without any evidence. Right. Right. And so, so there's the first, no doc Sorry, the, go on. Yeah, so the first trial is just ir irrelevant. That's why he got the appeal, because of these points. Be because none of the six studies was presented to the court. That's why he got the appeal. And, that, and then when, when he was in the second trial, he won, of course, because none of the six papers uh, had any evidence for the existence of the virus. But so there's no documentation on that second, the, the appeal? Because I, I have tried to find it, but um, yeah, I kind of just like ran into roadblocks because of the German and in, in translating and everything. I know you've sent me some stuff, but I, I, I still need to look through like a ton of stuff. But is there, any, there's, is there anything online, even in German? Uh, you, you can find a protocol uh, from the second trial <clears throat> that's in German and you can just use go Google Translate to, to, to get it into English. Mm -hmm. It's not, it's not perfect English, but you, you get, you get like a sense of it at least. So, uh, yeah. Uh, so th that's pretty much the, the only thing you can find, uh, when you search for the, the second trial, but, it, but like, Dr. Lanka goes through in, in this article that I sent you, Go, Virus, Go, that are translated in English. Uh, many things got left out of the protocol because it, it was like too, too controversial, should I say. Mm -hmm. it, it, it was too much for the court to handle. And the court tried to be as balanced as, as possible, according to Dr. Lanka. So they, they left out uh, various things. From the from the written protocol of, of the trial, so that's why it's so important to, to read this article because then you get a sense of of how the first trial went went and how the second trial went and and, and the various problems with the claims. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's so crazy. I mean, it's and if you're just using Google, like you don't expect to find anything like but i think the first thing they tell you is that like you know dr lenka is some conspiracy theorist or you know kook whatever they do they basically just trash everybody um so you have to be using like duck duck go or, or something else and and the crazy thing is though after even after he won that case they still um mandated uh the measles vaccine yeah, which goes goes to show that um, the whole system itself is pretty pretty corrupt. Because if the if the if the court trial show, showed anything that that's the lack of evidence for the Mises trial, but it also removed the foundation of virology indirectly, because yeah. one of the six studies was the study from 1954 with John Franklin Anders. That, that put the foundation of modern virology. So when that, that paper got, um, got called unscientific during mm -hmm. the court, then, uh, I mean, that removed the foundation because all other papers on, on viruses rely on that first paper. I mean, he set, he set the, the standard of modern virology. He, set, he instituted a method 
with the cell culture. He was the first one. So if that, if that method is wrong, then all other papers after it that uses the same flawed method is wrong. That's right. why the whole field of virology lack a scientific foundation. And it, it's part of German uh, court history or law. So knowing what we know now, having talked about all the ins and outs of virology, one thing people can't get past, and I've talked a lot about it on the podcast, is is the idea of contagion. You know, everybody has some experience where they're around somebody else and seemingly they get sick or catch something. What's your opinion on on the idea of contagion? How do you how do you believe people get sick? Um yeah, so from from my research into nutrition uh, prior to, to all of this with uh, virology and, and germ theory, I know that nutrition plays a huge part uh, when it comes to health. That's like the primary uh, reason behind most of the illness that we see, that, that's nutrition. And I'm, I'm not talking about like getting enough of uh, vitamin D or enough of iron. I'm talking about malnutrition. You have the wrong kind of diet, like the, the, the standard American diet, for example, the sad diet, that's the wrong kind of diet. You, we're not meant to eat processed food. We are not meant to eat like glyphosate, like, oh, that's so nice to have in the morning, glyphosate. Oh, that's, that's good. Uh, so, so, I mean, Nutrition is really important, um, like eating whole foods, organic whole foods. So that, that's the primary reason I see behind illness. And then, of course, we have other factors as well at work, like our belief system, how we view life, how we view ourselves, trauma. If we suffer trauma in our childhood, which, which many of us have, if the trauma is not dealt with, then it's, it's gonna cause problem in the long term. Like it can cause maybe cancer or, or other illnesses hmm. uh, because trauma, uh, trauma in our body causes stress and stress under a long period of time produces cortisol and cortisol is um, what we call immune suppressive. It's the wrong word really. Uh, I don't like the Im immune system or immune suppressor, but you right. get my meaning that it, it suppresses the, the, the regeneration of cells in our bodies. And, and we, when we stop, stop uh, producing new cells, that effectively, effectively uh, stops uh, uh, us from living. Mm -hmm. It's like slow, slowly dying when, it, when you sto uh, stop the production of new cells. Right. So if you if you have like cortisol production under a long period of time, then it can cause all kinds of inflammatory problems. And we know that inflammation is linked to like all kinds of illnesses. Sure. Yeah. So there's a number of things that can that can make us sick, make us ill. Um, but but the idea of like being like catching from somebody else, like, you know, you're in like a, a room or a house full of people or 
or you go to a party and and you get sick do you think that's just that that people are just looking at that wrong and they're tricking themselves into believing that they they caught something um uh, for my part I, i need to 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 be to be honest there i mean i can speculate i don't have any definite answer like mm-hmm. here's a study that that proves my point i don't have that i can speculate yeah. but i cannot prove like de- definitive that this is the answer so y- just to clarify that for people mm-hmm. but but i can see i can see various factors playing here i can see like the common exposure to different toxins in the environment like if if people gone to a party what do they take alcohol what what is alcohol a toxin okay can the alcohol itself like the liquor can it contain other toxins that shouldn't be there in the first place probably the the chance is there so let's say that everyone that had a tequila for example Mm -hmm. feeling really bad compared to the other people that didn't have the tequila so it's a it's a different toxin that they've been exposed to for example it can be something in the food if the food wasn't prepared good enough yeah like like it, or if the food was bad like it was rotten or or uh, it expired the date for for the food expired or some it can be something like that it can be it can even be like um like we we mimic each other for example like like it's it almost like psychosomatic mm. so you mm. just take take some examples like w- women when they spend together they they can start to 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 uh, sync their menstruation cycle and uh, we we know from um, um when when, uh, when partners when when they're expecting a child um the the male the the male can start to imitate the pregnant women i mean start to walk like they're pregnant they can have like uh, all kinds of zi- symptoms of pregnant women it's because like sy- they, they call it sympathy pains right right yeah. so they can start they can start feel pain in the knees and the back and but they're not pregnant but yes so there are different aspects of of our psychology involved here too yeah fear um, is certainly uh, a toxin fear right. is a big one yeah 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 and and uh, <clears throat> if we look at children for example we know all children every one of us have experienced children that they try to imitate us in a, in in a, in a special um like when they're let's say four or five years or something um they try to mimic us any way they can and that can even irritate us like stop it stop it <laughs> don't repeat what i say don't repeat what i say you know right. so they they mimic everything so if they see a child for example a fellow classmate like in preschool <clears throat> and they they see they see the child start to throw up then they can mimic that and throw up as well not because they themselves are sick but because their classmate is sick so yeah. so that kind of cycles through the whole school and they they blame it on a bug oh they catch the bug no 
it was one child who had a b b bad stomach because of something, and then mm -hmm. the other children just mimic that behavior. There are a and, lot of like and, mirrored responses, like even when we yawn, you know, like you usually mirror somebody who's yawning. Yeah, and uh, same with smiling, and and uh, I mean, yeah. So so I mean, all of these things play together, not just one, but all at all times. So we need to be careful at pointing at like. Oh, that's the one thing that made us ill. No, it can be yeah. multiple uh, contributing factors behind what we see. And I, I should also point out that we have three historical examples which we thought was contagious, but that wasn't. And we have, for example, um, <clears throat> scurvy, the most famous one, which we thought was a contagion, but we found out that, oh no, it was a nutritional deficiency in vitamin C. And then we had another called pellagra, a skin condition. And, and we thought that was a contagion and that happened to millions of people. And it, it spread like a contagion, but it wasn't a contagion. That was a vitamin B deficiency or niacin specifically. Wow. And, then we, and then we had beriberi, the same thing, a, a different condition but the same thing, vitamin D deficiency. So just because something looks contagious doesn't make it contagious. And I think that that is really important to understand. Right. And even with some of the major illnesses, you know, I talk a lot about the Spanish flu. They've, they've never been able to prove that it was contagious. You know, the, Ro the Rosenau experiments um, from, from 1918, where they did all kinds of crazy things things you know they had healthy people and sick people and they you know they put blood and 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 snot and all this stuff into the healthy people and they could never get the 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 disease to transfer so yeah and i don't know of any personally i don't know of any paper that that proves contagion no i don't know either and right. i mean i mean they went to extreme lengths I mean, they even injected, like they took fluid from a from an, a sick person, and and they injected that into a healthy person, so that like bypasses all natural uh, barriers that we have, like the skin and everything. Right. Right. So, uh, and they didn't manage to to make anyone sick that way either. So. Right. So it's got yeah. there's got to be something else there that we're not looking at or not studying or or we're just not paying attention to i don't know but um yeah that's I mean, why sorry yeah that's why yeah that's why it's so important to to address this issue with the virus because one of the ramifications of non-existent viruses is is that we have looked at the wrong place when it comes to illness and if we have looked at the wrong place then we we cannot prevent future cases of illness right we cannot prevent it if you don't know the cause. We're looking at the wrong place. So that's why it's also important. It's, it, it's not just finding out the truth about things, but also prevent future illness. And of course, then we have currently misdiagnosis of people that get in turn mistreated and the mistreatment then harms them and even kills them. Like in right. New York, for example, you know, the, the study from New York where uh 97.2% of the people over the age of 65 died because of the 
use of the ventilator, yeah. for example. Yeah. And the use of the ventilator came from the unjustified fear of the virus. Yeah, they didn't want it to spread through the air, right? The, the, so they, they just threw them on a, a, a ventilator. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's so many things. I mean, the, in the, from the pharmaceuticals to the ventilators, um, you know, they further just damage and toxify people's bodies. And uh, then they blame it on a, you know, on a submicroscopic particle or, or whatever. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, a lot, you know, a lot of people think that we're just denying illness in general or something, but we're, we're not, we're not denying, we're just denying the cause, you know, is what they say it is. Um, I think, you know, these things are, these things do happen, you know, um, but we're just not, we're not looking in the right place and we should be allowed to. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, 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 th I, I can admit that one of the problems with us is that we don't have a good explanation, a really solid one for the real reasons behind an illness. Like yeah. w why did he, he or her get sick? I don't know because we haven't investigated the true causes for 150 years. Mm. So, I mean, that's something that people need to, to understand too. They, they need to understand that we lack scientific uh, investigation into the real causes. And if we lack that, then you can't expect us to have all the answers. We need them, we all need them. I need them, you need them, everyone needs them. So, so but first we have to address the fact that viruses doesn't exist. And I also want to point out that just because we lack another uh, lack an explanation for 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 the real reason, it, that, that itself doesn't prove that viruses exists. Right. I mean, that's like a bl blaming an innocent man for murder, even though we don't have any evidence for him committing the murder. So true, very true. Before we sh kind of shift here, I wanted to ask you about your uh, opinions on um, shedding. This is one subject that drives me absolutely bonkers. Um, and there's people I completely respect who believe in it, and it's no no disrespect to them. Um, but I haven't been able to, like, you know, find any real logic in it myself. You know, there's a lot of people right now who believe that um, others who have been in injected pose some sort of uh, risk um, from, from some kind of, you know, shedding whatever is in that injection and making other people ill. And for me, that's just like, you know, saying like, well, if I'm bitten by a snake, then I can poison you by sweating out the venom or, or whatever, or I can make you drunk by, by intoxicating myself with alcohol. Uh, what are your opinions on that? Yeah, I, I hold pretty much the same perspective as you that, um, it, it doesn't make sense. Um, I mean, when we remove, when we remove the idea of a virus, we also remove um, the mechanism of transmission and infection, not just transmission, but also infection. So if you remove that, then how are you going to make someone else ill them? Correct. It, There's there's definitely yeah. no viral shedding. Yeah. 
yeah. So th then, then it boils down to poisons. But as far as I know, and anyone, I mean, if if I take rat poison, for example, and I stand close to another, do do him or her become sick because I have taken the rat poison? I haven't I haven't uh, heard of any study like that where where someone takes a poison and the other one becomes ill. So, yeah, right. I, I think, yeah. Sorry, I think it would have to be in such great amount, you know, that that the per the host would be so severely ill or even dead, you know, to begin with in order to harm another person. Yeah, I think the only exception to that rule is if you if you just ha had a baby or or if you're pregnant, for example, because then if you're pregnant then you share you share all the blood and all the fluids with with the with the child. Sure. So so of course a poison then will probably poison the the, the child. Right. And and the same when when you have an infant um then you you then the poison may get into the milk of the mother mm -hmm. that the body uh, that the child then um just. So so that way it can, can introduce a toxin to the child but that's yeah that's an exception to the rule i mean it's it's not like uh uh an adult male or 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 woman like can shed something to another i don't see that yeah but so if you think that um a baby can get it through milk would that also mean that sexual contact would also be a problem like exchange uh. of other bodily fluids no. Why no, is that I different? Um, well, that that's that's hard to explain, but it's just a different kind of mechanism. Well, yeah. I mean, you're not. I mean, you're not ingesting it. I mean, I don't know. It depends on what you what you do, but um, I don't know. I'm I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah. No, I I can't see that because then then your then your uh, parts have to be like like the surface of your parts mm -hmm. have to be like have to have the poison outside on the surface. Right. And yeah, and then that way it, it gets in or over the other one's parts. So, mm. but but I mean have we have we read one study of that? Have we heard one study of that? Have no. they done have they done an experiment like that? I I don't know, really. To be honest, I don't know. I haven't heard. I haven't looked. But but uh, yeah, it's it's, it's yeah. It seems very unlikely to me. You know, um, I, I yeah. I don't know of any any real mechanism. And and people tend to people who do believe in this tend to rely on this idea of bioresonance, you know, like that we're resonating some kind of frequency. Um, but, you know, our friend Don Lester makes a good point with that, too, is like, you know, you would have to be within a certain distance of, of somebody, too, for that. Um, it just, yeah, it just doesn't seem plausible to me, but we don't really know a whole lot. 
Yeah, and and uh, she she also makes an another good point uh, is that le let's say it was it was due to bioresonance. So if if I'm close to you, then then my electric field influences yours. But what happens when when I remove myself from your proximity, like when I go home? Then I'm not influencing your electrical field anymore. So. Right that would give it time to to stabilize again right mm -hmm. so yeah. unless the idea is that you carry on that frequency i don't but i yeah. don't know if that's i would think that you're coming in contact then afterwards with other kind of frequencies and resonance or whatever yeah because it, it it get influenced by all kinds of fields uh, right. like if you pass if you pass a, a lot of people to to the grocery store i mean how many times does the electrical field uh, gets influenced by other people's electrical fields? It's like, okay, now yeah. it's positive and then it's negative. Now it's positive. Now it's negative all the way to the grocery store and back home again. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. <laughs> it's a good point. It, it, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. It doesn't make sense to me. And, and where is the study for that? It's just a hypothesis. A hypothesis at the moment, like speculation yeah. that it could be a bioresonance, but we don't know. So, yeah. Are you familiar with the study? Alec talks about this a lot, our friend Alec Zek, um, about the, the two uh, beakers that have like nucleic acids in it. And then, you know, they ended up um, transferring somehow. But I meant to talk to him about this the other day because we were trying to do a live, but. Um, he he uses that as a study for uh for proof that this may be a thing but i heard i think dr kaufman said something about that like the like the experiment may have been fixed like there may have been some connection between the beakers i don't know if you know anything about that particular study i think it was montagnier who did it um yeah yeah i think it, it, it's him that did it uh, I, I know of an experiment I'm I'm not sure if the same one, but I know of an experiment where they had like one test tube with just mm -hmm. water in it, and then they had another test tube with a piece of DNA. Right. And then and then they they used a frequency. Uh, I think it was the human resonance frequency, 7.83 hertz, oh. which which they used. So they they put that. Uh, through the DNA, and then the the test tube that was totally isolated and had just pure water, that started to to get the the same pieces of DNA in it, like the the same replica. So that was like transferring DNA from one to another, right? Just by by frequency. I I don't know if that's the same study because I haven't heard of the frequency part, but otherwise it sounds very similar. Um, but I, I have no idea how valid those studies are. Yeah, it's hard to tell because, yeah, they I mean, they they do fake a lot of studies, too. You know, they they kind of bend it to to fit their own agenda. So, yeah, um, I know of other experiments, too, where they used uh, magnetic fields where they, for example, um, I have it in my article where, where I um, bring out the idea that uh, the gene idea that we have genes and, and 
and our idea of DNA, for example. I was just going to ask you about that next, actually. Yeah, it, it needs to be revised, mm -hmm. uh, really, be because the, the scientific foundation behind a, a stable genome isn't there. So, but anyway, uh, in that article, I bring out two videos where they use magnetic fields to influence the form of a being. So they took a frog, for example. So in the embryo stage, they use different magnetic fields to influence it. And the frog ended up with having two heads. So one head uh, off uh, to each direction instead of a head and a, and a end, but like, yeah. So it had two heads and they used the magnetic fields in order to, to shape that creature. So do you think, so you think form can be affected through like an electrical hijack, like using yeah. frequency? Yeah, the, the experiments suggest that. And, and, and uh, those two videos also question the idea that DNA is the blueprint. So it, it plays into the same, same um, perspective as, as I hold today, that the DNA is not the blueprint. It's not the book of life that we've been taught to believe. So let's say we're pumped full of some kind of uh, electrical conductor. Let's say graphene, for example. Uh, what kind of effect do you think that would have on our form? I have no idea, really. Have you, really, have you no haven't idea. looked into it at all? No, and, 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 and I doubt that, that anyone really knows. Mm. I, I think this is just an experimentation. Let's say uh, that these new injections contain graphene oxide. Um, I still think that it's a huge experiment on the people. Um, and uh, nobody knows the, the final result of all this. I, I, I see in some images and videos about children um, being born with black eyes, for example. Um, yeah, I saw that again the other day. Someone sent that to me. Th th those are so weird. I, I initially thought that they were fake, maybe. Yeah, and, and I'm, yeah, I, I don't know if, if it's real or not, but I, I started to think about the grays, you know, in the UFO circles that talk about the grays, you know, the big black eyes. And right. I, I started to get those images in my head. It's like, where are we going now? I mean, what is this? Is, is this true or is this just some fake rigging on out there? Because we know a lot of things are fake out there. So. Of course. Yeah, you have to be very discerning. But we do know graphene is an electrical conductor. It is used yeah. in a manner of different, different ways. Uh, and as you said, electricity can change form. So knowing those two things, you could assume that that would have an effect, right? Yeah, in, in what degree, that, that's the question. Mm -hmm. that, that's like the same question I tell people who, 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 deny, um, who deny that, that EMFs don't, don't cause any harm yeah. to, to biological life. Then I say, no, that's the wrong question. The right question is, in what degree does the EMF causes uh, or influences us? Hmm. Uh, because all electrical fields affect one another. Um, that is something I can see very clearly. And, and uh, I think musicians 
can really see that, especially those that have studied to be like a producer or something, because if you take if you take two sound waves and you invert it, they cancel each other out, if I'm mm -hmm. correct. Yeah, so, so you can see that two frequencies can affect one another pretty easily from, from that perspective. Sure. So if, if, you, if you apply that to a larger scale and see life, because life is all, all just frequencies and energy and vibration after all. So of course, frequencies will affect each other in what degree that I don't know when it comes to the, the artificial uh, frequencies that we generate through to 3G, 4G, 5G, 6G, and Wi-Fi and, and all kinds of technologies. Uh, I also wonder, <clears throat> not just in, 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 uh, in, in what degree, but, but um, I also wonder if the, if the pulse itself also because natural frequencies are constant like from the sun and, and from the universe yeah. it, it, it it's a constant signal it's a constant frequency hitting us while the artificial frequencies are pulsating like they have a pulse and and that difference itself is not something that that life on earth has adapted to we have adapted to a constant frequency from yeah. the stars and from the sun uh, and this pulse that changes the game also i think that's so. a very good point yeah we've uh, a couple of people have mentioned that on the show the fact that the, that's you know the difference between pulsating waves and stuff like that and Re remy um my friend remy and i talked about on our last episode a lot about that stuff super interesting i i really don't think that we've like unlocked so much of that whole subject you know um and i think that there's so much to it i think it really holds like the secret of everything like tesla said i mean you know frequency energy vibration he said these are the the, the secrets to the the universe or where, wherever we're at right now <laughs> um yeah it it, need, it needs to be studied and i think but i think that the people at the tippity top who know you know know a lot more about it than we do that's my uh that's my guess yeah yeah uh, but i i wouldn't say that the politicians know more than you and i do because they don't no not necessarily the politicians but like the you know the people that who really run in the show behind the curtain you know yeah um i i i look at this as ignorant people using smart people to further their agenda yes. so so it can be a small group of scientists that are corrupt but they steer the, all the other scientists with good intentions so right. we we see, we see that in in other fields like take climate science for example we know the perfect example of this is like judith curry when she came out and and, and blew the whistle on climate change she, she openly spoke about the fact that she thought that the data that she used was, was obse observed data, that was raw data. Hmm. But, it, it, but when she started to investigate it, the data, the source of the data, then she found out that the data was manufactured, that it was uh, corrupted. 
Mm. So, so, so th this is how how our good and honest scientists are being misled because they trust their fellow colleagues. And if one of the colleagues is dishonest and corrupt, then all the other scientists that follow the same data, then they they are being misled. One so, rotten apple, apple ruins the bunch, right? That's what they say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think people discount how much of the world is run by, you know, groups of people with the same agenda. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I read a lot about secret societies and, <laughs> and things like that, which I, you know, I think you're very real. I mean, you can look at Yale. I'm reading a book about uh, Skull and Bones. And, you know, if you read like a Anthony Sutton's work on Skull and Bones, like, you know, back in the day, like everybody who came out of that group was in a position of power somewhere. And their whole thing, their whole MO is to help each other out with one, you know, common goal, you know, yeah. to advance each other and advance their agenda. And yeah. there are multiple groups like this, you know, and they're, they're involved in politics. They're involved in big pharma. They're involved in everything you can imagine, medicine. So yeah. it's not it's not such a wild idea. No, yeah, uh, I mean it, I'm a, I'm aware of, of uh, Yale and Skull and Bones and so in the U.S. But w when I came across that many years ago, uh, I started to to look into how things are in Sweden, for example. Yeah. Do we have any secret societies or or, or something similar? Um, I didn't find any university or, or, or like that here in Sweden, a special university, but I found out that I think it was since the 1990s, 18, 1980 or 1990s, every prime minister here in Sweden have gone through the Bilderberg group, for example. That's, <laughs> that's quite interesting. Yeah. Every single, every single one. So. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's where we're supposed to just discount that as like a, you know, just a random occurrence, <laughs> you know, if people truly investigated these kind of commonalities, then uh, they might start, you know, thinking a little, a little bit more about the information that we're getting. Yeah, and it's even treasonous for them to, 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 um, to visit each other in that way because these are our politicians for the people. So they have to follow a, a set of rules. They have yeah. to follow the law in Sweden, for example, or the law in, in the US. And, and the way they meet each other, like through the Bilderberg group, that, that is considered treason. Yeah. Yeah. They're not, they're so not allowed to meet in, in secret like that away from the public, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah, I'm insane. Um, before we get too far away from the, the gene thing, though, I wanted to ask you. So, so we we talked about like how you know electricity could could uh, cause changes, but um, this idea of like gene editing or like chemical gene editing or from like some kind of injection, a lot of people still believe that that is a thing. Um, so, and it was my understanding, and I think you you know, are, are saying this as well, that the human genome is ever, ever evolving. It's always changing. So that can't happen. Um, yeah. Um, okay. So let's bring 
bring stuff uh, in here. So first off, we all have been taught that the DNA comes into existence first, and then, then we have the RNA that comes from the DNA. So the DNA is a double-stranded uh, double um, genetic, genetic string or sequence. Then we have the RNA, which is a single strand, which holds the instructions to create the, the protein then. That, that, that's really uh, what we all have been taught. The problem with that is that when I, when I started to research um, virology, I came across the work of Dr. Lanka. And I, I came across an interview from 1998. And in that interview, um, he said that RNA comes into existence before the DNA. That kind of flips it all because then the RNA comes before the DNA. So uh, how does that work then? Hmm. We know, we know, I mean, everyone know about the PCR today. <laughs> I mean, everyone is like a self-proclaimed expert these days about the PCR. Yeah. And yeah, and the, the PCR works by ampli amplifying uh, the, the DNA. But then we have something called RT-PCR. And what does RT stands for? Reverse, transcript uh, reverse transcription, where you take RNA and transcribing it into DNA. But how does that work? That works uh, through an enzyme called transcriptase. And all biological life, like high, higher, higher life, like plants, animals, and humans, got, the, got this enzyme. So that's how RNA gets transcribed into DNA. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So DNA seemed to be like a result of this, from my view, from my perspective. I can, of course, be wrong, but th this is my perspective and my understanding. Uh, so that means that the, the DNA is, is changing. Also, we have to consider that our bodies contain a lot of free RNA. What do I mean? What do I mean by that? I mean that a lot of RNA is circulating inside our bodies that doesn't show up in our DNA, like it doesn't have a reference point. And the RNA can change depending on the environment, depending on the environmental changes. So if we combine all, all of these things, we can see that, okay, so the RNA comes into existence on its own. It can change because of the environmental changes that happens and it happens all the time, all the time. If it gets hot, if it gets cool, in the environment, it changes every thought, every belief, everything, everything you consume, everything in the environment changes. So that change that can change the RNA and the RNA get, can get transcribed into the, the DNA. So the DNA is in constant change all the time. So it's not a stable book like a, you, you, you buy Lord of the Rings and the Lord of the Rings is always the same story all the time. Mm -hmm. Like it, it got the same chapters and all the time, no it's fluid, it's, it's in constant change. So if you, if you have that in your mind and then you have like a scientist that claim that, oh, I'm gonna modify the DNA. Okay, how, how's that gonna work? Okay, so we introduce RNA, synthetic RNA into the body. Okay, so even if they succeed with that, 
which is a huge problem. They had a huge problem for, for many years just to introduce the RNA because as soon as it, it gets in, it gets destroyed. Right. So they, tr they tried with different uh, lipids, like four different lipids they're using now, I think, in the Moderna shot, just to get past our uh, uh, so-called defenses to, to have the RNA uh, uh, con um, uh, like have it stabilize uh, it, right? Yes, it stabilize right. Mm -hmm. So even if they get through that, then it will have to produce the protein, then because that's the purpose of the introduction of this synthetic protein. And uh, so that that's a huge problem because we we know, for example, that over ninety percent of all proteins in our body doesn't have any connection to our DNA. So how does the protein then gets produced? Okay, so let's say that it, it it's produced by the RNA, right? But the RNA changes all the time because of the environmental changes. So even if you introduce a synthetic version of an RNA, how much, how long will that stay in the body in that form? Hmm. When you say environmental changes, do you mean like the internal environment? Yeah, internal and external, because okay. we we I mean everything in our in our environment influences the these nucleic acid. Okay. Uh, yeah, and the production of different proteins. Gotcha. Yeah. Is there any evidence that um, our cells can be made to produce? proteins through an uh, injection like that yeah that that's a really good question and and uh, we we have to then uh, ask the question um, how does the protein gets produced like okay so so we we introduce a RNA into like into the cell okay? And there we're told that the ribosome is is taking that RNA in order to produce the protein. But if we look at, for example, the work of Harold Hillman, then he questions the existence of the ribosome. So, mm. so how is the RNA then going to produce the, the the protein? I mean, that's just a good question, right? Yeah. So I, I don't know if Harold Hillman is correct or not, but that's a good question. Yeah, I still have to read Hillman. Uh, I have some of his his work, but um, yeah, I mean, he even questions like cellular theory, right? Which I don't even yeah. completely understand yet, to be honest with you. Um, and and so, uh, he, he questions the idea of cell receptors. And why is that important? Because... We all have been taught this for two years now, the ACE2 receptor, the infamous ACE2 receptor. Yes. Okay. Yeah. But if we don't have any cell receptors, then the ACE2 is gone. It's just a fiction. It's just a model, a concept, if you will. Right. right? Yeah. I was asking uh, our friend, I think, I don't know who I was talking to the other day, but about uh, ACE2 receptors. And, you know, supposedly they're in your eyes and even in your ears and... Um, this is this is like the interlocking mechanism to the virus. Um, yeah, because th this whole idea is based on the virus idea. So the virus 
the virus has the alleged spike protein, yeah. right? Yeah, like the horn on the unicorn. That's the spike. <laughs> that, that's the spike protein. Yeah. So if we, yeah, right. So that's gonna attach then to to the cell receptor to the infamous ACE2 receptor. But if you remove the virus from the equation, you remove the horn from the unicorn as well, right? So so that mechanism of transmission is removed, and the ACE2. If you don't have that, according to Hillman, we don't have cell receptors. There's no evidence of that because he, he can't find any visible structure that resembles anything to, to a receptor. It's just a smooth surface on the cell. You don't see any visible structure that, that can, can be a receptor of any kind. So if you remove the receptor, then you don't have the other side of a mechanism of the infection. It can't it attach itself to something that doesn't exist. So, yeah. It seems like so much of, of everything is really just like presupposition or, you know, like assuming uh, piggybacking off of something else, to, you know, to, to um, kind of further an idea when you really try and trace back all this stuff in, in, you know, modern day, uh, medicine and science, it's like, you, you really come up with more questions than answers. Yeah. And, and, and we should also, I, I forgot to mention that the double helix model, which we all have been taught like, Oh, the double helix model of the DNA. Hmm. Yeah. It's a model, but it hasn't been proven like the, the two other models of DNA, like the rib, rib, have you heard of the ribbon helix, for example, or, no. uh, or um, side by side model. So that the two other models that I found out uh, earlier this year, when me and, and Don Lester, when we started research into the, into the double helix, because uh, we heard David Martin say, during a presentation that the double helix model hasn't been proved and that piqued my interest. It was like, what? And then I found two other models. I was like, oh, I didn't know that. What are they ba What are they basing the double helix on? How did they come up with that theory? Um, th they did some uh, crystallography um, back in the 50s and then they used some math um, to try and uh, figured it out but if the math is wrong the model is wrong hmm. and, and they, they didn't use the whole dna they used a fraction of the dna mm -hmm. the alleged dna or what I, I i'm not sure i'm not sure about the dna either i mean it, is it real is it not i don't know it's something i i still question for the moment i hold the idea that dna exists and, and rna exists as it's taught to us but the model behind it, the double helix model, isn't proven like a solid proven uh, model. Like it exists in, in that structure in reality. Mm -hmm. It's just a mathematical uh, construct that they created. And even, I mean, in, in recent interviews, <clears throat> uh, Dr. Lanka even questioned the, the chromosomes because the chromosomes itself is also a concept, mm -hmm. a model that they built up. So even that is up for questioning. Yeah. So I wonder how much of this genetic research is really valid. 
that's why that's why he said also that he thinks that in the future it will be renamed from genetic research into nucleic acid research because more mm. and more uh, research suggests that we don't have genes hmm that would change a lot i mean what how do you suppose if that's true you know we have these like you know people born with genetic abnormalities and um I mean, so much of di disease is based on on this idea of genes. H how would that work? How does that work now? I mean, that's just such a confusing thing for me. Uh, yeah. So um, okay. So this is just my my understanding now, and it can change tomorrow. Uh, so so take it just as my understanding. It's not definitive science sure. or anything, but. Um, as Dr. Lanka have tried to explain, the nucleic acid is meant to produce energy in our bodies. We know that the mitochondria in our cells are responsible. They're, they're part of a process in generating energy. We call that ATP. We all are familiar with that. We also know that um, he spoke about this uh, in the 90s when it, when he talked about or was it in the 80s when he spoke about uh, HIV AIDS that a, a strong antibiotics can harm the mitochondria the genetic information in, in the mitochondria and mm. that itself makes the mitochondria to produce less energy less ATP and when you have less energy then it can produce all kinds of illnesses including what they call AIDS. Mm. So, so these, um, going back to your question, I think it can be re um, related to, to a lack of energy production in your body because the nucleic acid uh, has been damaged in some form or another, or, or the mitochondria in, in your cells have been damaged early on in your development and that itself causes the abnormalities mm -hmm. that you're born with them. I can see that perspective uh, as a possible uh, explanation, but I have no definitive proof of that. It's just an extrapolation based on what he said about nucleic acid, the purpose, the real purpose behind that and, and, and mitochondria, what the function is with producing energy and, and just mixing it together. So mm. take it for what it is. It's just a speculation on my part. Yeah, that's an interesting idea for sure. I mean, I'm, you know, I've never really looked into most of that stuff. So I'm, I'm kind of, uh, you know, lost on it. But yeah, definitely something to look into. Because, um, yeah, I mean, it's another thing that we've been programmed with for so long, you know, that there are so many questions on it. And, and if you think about this, when I, when I mentioned the double helix model, that you have two other models competing with the double helix. Well, how does how does the rest of the genetic research uh, stand up if the model is wrong? Like if you have if you think you have a structure of something and you you, you piece everything together according to a, a given structure, but if the if the structure is wrong then what else is wrong, like how everything else works. Like you shift like from a from from one set of building to another. 
like how does the whole idea of things changes like the, the correlations between different nucleic acids, for example, different sequences and how they work together. And yeah, so mm -hmm. I, I think there's a lot of uncertainty when it comes to genetic research. That is for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that that's all my questions for you, man. I mean, it's been pretty enlightening. Um, for anybody who wants to to find your work, what's your um, what's your main resource to to give people? Cause I know you have a lot of really great articles and uh, and stuff. I recommend everybody take a read. Uh, you can find me at two places. You can find me at uh, truthseeker.se. That's my webpage. Um, there you can find my written articles and also a bunch bunch of videos and uh, articles written by other people. Or you can find me on Steemit. So steemit.com uh, uh, slash at John Blade. And you can find my articles there. Um, and then, of course, I'm, I am on other social media platforms where you can chat with me if you feel up for it. Yeah, I'm, I'm on Gab, I'm on Facebook, Telegram. If you're uh, a virologist and you want to debate isolation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'd love to yeah. read some more uh, conversations on that for sure. Um, yeah. All right, man. Well, I hope everybody checks out your work. It's definitely worth it. And um, yeah, thanks so much for, for coming by and, and chatting with me today. It's been uh, pretty cool. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed this chat. So. I, ho I hope to be back again if you if you allow me to. So. I would I would love that for sure. I'm sure we could talk for hours and hours about you know many other other topics. <laughs> yeah. And um, anybody listening, you know, if you enjoy this podca uh, podcast, please uh, give us subscribe and and leave us a comment. Let us know what you think. Uh, that would be swell. Thanks again. The information presented in this program is not intended as legal, health, or nutritional advice. It is provided for informational purposes only. Alighton does not endorse nor accept responsibility for any statements, views, or opinions expressed by its guests.